Good morning, saints of our Lord, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Brady Finner, and pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for tuning us in this morning on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. A blessed epiphany season to all of you this Friday, January the 21st. We gather this next hour around the inspired and true word of God, and we see Christ in him crucified, for he is our light and our life. For this light shines on us from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus is indignant, always an interesting perspective of Jesus. He is indignant with the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He grieves also for the lack of faith, which we see Jesus do continually throughout the Bible, and he invites people to himself for rest. And boy, do we need it. It is something that is quite fascinating to see that word rest. What does it mean for us? How does it play out? What does it mean to rest in Jesus? We will find more about that. And also Jesus does not keep us away from the real world, but he shows us how he be with us during all of it. So many good words for us to ponder this morning for the gifts are ready, ready for you. Thank you to our friends at Lutheran Heritage Foundation for your support of Thy Strong Word. Visit lhfmissions.org for more information, lhfmissions.org. Helping us to be strengthened by God's Word, we welcome back Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, happy Epiphany and welcome back to Thy thank, Strong Word. Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful. Well, and what a wonderful text we have today, too. It's just fantastic. I'm into that. I'm into that. So, Pastor, uh, what's going on for you, your family, and the work of the saints at St. Paul and Jesus' death? All as well. You continue to, to plug along through this COVID uh, stuff, you know, two years in now, but uh, going strong here at both congregations and looking forward to the Lord's uh, kindness and mercy for another year. Uh, Texas, especially Austin, is a really interesting place to be nowadays. It's kind of the center of the world in some in some ways. There are a lot of things moving here, a lot of moving people. Pieces. And so I've uh, been able to see a lot of new folks coming to town. That's also pretty exciting for us as well. So, But there's still room. So if people are listening and thinking about moving to Texas, I would encourage that. Well, you know, it, it is kind of a popular place. And I tell you what, when it gets to negative 15 here in Minnesota, <laughs> we get pretty excited about the idea of anywhere south. Even Iowa suffices many times for us. But anyways. That's right. So, so Pastor, um, we're in Matthew 11. Can you begin our time in prayer? Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may in such ways hear them. Read and mark and learn and inwardly digest them that by the comfort and the hope of your holy scriptures, we might cling to the sure hope of eternal life, which you give us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Reminder to our listeners, if you have any questions concerning our text today or any parts of Matthew, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org. Pastor, I think I want to start this way is I'll read all of our verses to begin with, kind of wet our pout a little bit. Um, We're in Matthew 11, beginning verse 20, and we'll go through verse 30. And then I want to hear your introductory thoughts when we are done with that. So um, here we go. Matthew 11, reminder to our listeners, we are reading from the English Standard Version, Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, 
it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Lord chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we hear these words, Pastor, how do you want to begin these, well, unique words of Jesus? Yeah, it's uh, if you ever wanted a law gospel uh, distinction, you've got it. The first four yes. verses are the Lord blasting away these side, uh, these cities who um, which did not receive him. And it seems like Jesus is coming off a denunciation of the Pharisees especially for not receiving John the Baptist. So that was just before this where uh, Jesus points out that John came fasting and he was mocked and Jesus came feasting and he was mocked. In other words, there's nothing that you could do right to be received by the unbelieving heart. And then he turns to these cities, Corzin, Bethsaida, where he's, he's blasting them away and he compares them to some of the um, – Cities in the Old Testament that experienced God's judgment, Tyre and Sidon and, and even Sodom. And, and Jesus says, look, if, if the, those unbelieving cities that were wiped out, if they would have seen just a portion of what you have seen, they would have repented gladly in sackcloth and ashes and turned to the Lord. And yet all these mighty works are done in your midst and you have no faith at all, no trust in the Lord. Uh, so it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for those cities judged in the Old Testament than it is for you. But then Jesus stops. The, Matthew sort of makes a break and, and he pauses and he prays. And he prays to the Lord verses that really sound like they could come right out of the Gospel of John. In fact, I think I did that one time. I took uh, Matthew chapter 10, oh, like verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Father, knows the Son except the Father. And I, we were playing Bible Bee, and I put that verse out there. And, and the person I was playing against guessed John, because so, it sounds like John. And then, and then Jesus is bidding the people there listening, his disciples and us to come to him and to come to him, not for more work or for a heavier burden or to be given more tasks, but rather to come to him uh, to find rest, rest for our souls, rest for our lives. It's an amazing, amazing text. So, and then, so that's how Jesus ends. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we rejoice that Jesus, um, he is our rest. He's our, he's our Sabbath. And, and Matthew seems to have that in mind, and that's where he'll go next. I imagine you'll study that next week, chapter 12, because then comes the, the Sabbath controversy. Jesus says, I'll give you rest, and then the Pharisees have to fight about what it means to rest. And I, we'll get to that a little bit later, because there is that dynamic of what does it actually mean to rest in Jesus? Is this a... Uh, a pina colada on a beach 
kind of dynamic? Is it uh, I don't do anything or is it something else? And I want to get to that later because that's an important passage that we'll use a lot in, in pastoral care when you visit with people. Um, it's something you have to use a lot with even young people as they're anxious about the world. And and it's right, you know, like you said, law gospel here, because it starts in a way that you're like, Jesus ain't going to give us no rest. I mean, he's he's mad. He's not happy with this. And then all of a sudden he sneaks in the rest idea. So it really is a fascinating text for us to be able to apply to our Christian walk today. So, Pastor, anything else you want to give any broad overview before we begin? No, nope, I think that's great. Okay, let's do this. Um, yeah, we'll just go a few verses at a time. I'm just going to start with verse 20. So we read once again. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. I want to I want to break this down real simple because it's good to know our terms. Repent. Yeah. What? does repent mean? We often hear that to repent means to turn. And I remember hearing this over and over. To repent means to do a U-turn. You're doing all the sinful stuff and you stop doing the sinful stuff and you start doing the right stuff. That is not the biblical understanding of repentance. Our Lutheran confessions are so helpful when they teach us that repentance has two parts. Um, That first we hear the law and The law convicts us. We realize that we are sinners that have deserved God's wrath and eternal punishment. That's that's the first part of repentance. And then the second part of repentance is that we hear the gospel and we believe it, that the forgiveness of sins is also for us, that God's kindness is also for us. And that belief, that trusting in the Lord's mercy is the filling up, the completion of repentance. And then the Holy Spirit causes fruit to come, the fruit of repentance, like John the Baptist preached. And that is the good works that follow and the patient suffering that follows uh, the gift of repentance. And it's amazing, too, that when Jesus uh, is rebuking the cities for their lack of repentance, and he says, look, all these signs and wonders were done in the midst of you, and you didn't repent. This is really great for us to know that the reason why Jesus was performing miracles, or let's say it like this, the reason why Jesus was letting his miracles be seen by all the people was for the purpose of repentance. So when a miracle is worked, what should I do about that? I should repent. And Jesus will take this and expand it out. Whenever disaster is seen, what should I do? Answer is I should repent. Jesus talks about the tower that falls on the people. And should we say that they were worse people than anyone else? No, but we should repent. So whenever we see a a sign or a wonder that Jesus is doing, this is also what the, the fruit that Jesus wants is the fruit of repentance. This is why the law is preached. In fact, in fact, this is why Jesus is going to now turn around and preach these woes to all the people in these cities, because he desires their repentance unto salvation. So let's let's try to break this down even a little more. Typically, which is what I have often heard repentance to be. And the reality is it's kind of like stuck in the stuck in my mind, you know, like in the back of my mind that if I say repent, I'm going to have to say the word turn. It's almost like a natural thing. If you were to have a tagline, which I know you love taglines, you want more of them in your life, um, that tagline for repentance, you described it beautifully as we, as we confess in our small catechism. Is there a, a sentence or a shorter way of being able to say it that would help unpack it for people? I'm, I'm trying to gather my brain around without saying the word turn. Sure, so how would yeah. You repentance repent? has two parts, contrition and faith. 
Contrition is the work of the law to show us our sin, and faith is trust in the gospel to know that Christ is the one who died for sinners. And then, if you want the the changed life, the fruit of faith follows as a as the third part. Or really, it's the fruit; it's the result of repentance. But but this is the best way to say it. I think repentance has two parts: contrition or sorrow over sin, and faith in the forgiveness of sins that comes from Christ. That is very helpful. So what he's really he's calling them. To faith. Yeah. He's calling these cities to faith. He's just not trying to say, okay, oh, okay, there it is. There is a repentance. He is calling them to faith in him for what he has done. So any verse 20 is not a lot there. I wanted to make sure we got that repent word down, contrition and faith. Anything else you want to highlight as before we start looking at the cities? Nope. That's it. We'll, we'll take a, a one thought, but let's extend it over verse 21 too. So. Awesome. Awesome. Um, 21. We're just going to say 21. Yeah. Woe to you, O Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then it would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So now we get the woes, you know, who, who wants to hear woes? I know I don't. So what is he, what is he, what is he unpacking? Yeah, this is, so this sounds an awful lot like the preaching of the Old Testament. And, but here's what we can remember. I think that the key uh, text to, to apply what Jesus is doing rhetorically is the, is the story of the potter from Jeremiah. It's a parable, but it, it's actually, it really happened. The Lord sent Jeremiah down to watch the potter doing his pottery work, and he was making something. And the potter f- found an error or a lump or something in the clay that indicated that he couldn't make what he was planning to make, so he changed and he made something different. And and Jeremiah is watching this, and the Lord says, that is how I am with you. So I'm going to come and I'm going to preach. On the one hand, I might come and I might preach destruction. I'm going to tear you up and throw you down and your cities are going to be destroyed. But if you repent, then I will change and bless you. On the other hand, I might come and promise I'm going to come and bless you and and give you all that you need to protect you and so forth. But if you don't repent, if you sin and do whatever you want, then I will draw my protection and you'll be tossed up and turned over and all this sort of stuff. So the point is that the preaching is to have an effect, the effect of repentance and faith. We're not supposed to hear the gospel and go along securely and do whatever we want and sin. We're also not supposed to hear the law and fall into despair that the Lord will have no mercy. No, we're supposed to hear the the law and repent and the gospel and believe. And so when Jesus says, woe to you, Woe to you to these cities. If you had done these, if the mighty works that had been done in you had been done in these two destroyed cities, they would have repented. The reason why Jesus is preaching these woes is so they would repent and avoid the judgment to come. So whenever the Lord promises judgment, we have to remember that he's promising that judgment for the sake of repentance. He, he, he promises judgment before it comes so that it won't come. He promises disaster before it comes so that da- disaster can be avoided. So the people there in Corazon, Bethsaida, they're not supposed to just sort of throw up their hands and say, well, woe on us, nothing we can do about it. No, they are the, the, the intent here is that they would repent. There's something also interesting in, that, in, in this text, and that is that these two cities are only mentioned here. So we have no idea what works Jesus did in those cities and how they were rejected by the people. It just is not told to us. And I was reading 
Alfred Edersheim, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, just a couple of paragraphs on this text, and he, he makes a nice point that if, if this was a fable, if Matthew was writing a made-up story, you would never mention cities like this that are just mentioned here and then left behind. You would always have some sort of story that connected them. But th- the fact that they're here is another proof that this is, this is real history that's being brought to us. And it's interesting, yeah, because you have these two cities which are by the Sea of Galilee. I, I only, I guess I didn't look that closely, but I found Bethsaida, uh, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. We talk about Capernaum later, too. Uh, I'm assuming Corazon is nearby there as well. Did you find where that is? Yep, is it yep. by the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, so Bethsaida is sort of, the Jordan River flows into the north side of the Sea of Galilee and then out the south side. And Bethsaida would be on the um, east side of where the Jordan mm-hmm. River flows in. And Corazon is on the west side of where the Jordan River flows in a little further, maybe a, a couple of miles to the west of that. Ah, okay. So this is important for you, our listeners, is that there's a wonderful map on the Lutheran Study Bible, which we talk about often here. Um, Color map four will show a Bethsaida, and then you can get an idea. Somewhere between Bethsaida and Capernaum on the west side of Jordan River is where that is. And throughout the Gospels, and we've seen it already, you'll see Jesus doing miracles in in that area. So clearly, he had done something among these people, which we do not know, which is even more exciting. I mean, just think about all the things Jesus did that we don't even know about, which is pretty amazing. John but says that if up- all the miracles were written down, the world couldn't handle all the books. So <laughs> so there's that's a lot true. that we don't know about. And But this is that's, that's also important for us to know is that every word that we do have is – is um, precious to us and selected by God, the Holy Spirit, to bless us and give us all that we need. So that to know that there were so many things that happened that weren't recorded uh, gives us, um, it should heighten our awareness and attention to the things that are given to us. I find it interesting, too, how he takes um, these two cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, and then he brings in two other cities, Tyre and Sidon. And it's kind of like a comparison thing he's doing. You see Paul do this, and, and especially in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, talk about, hey, Corinthians, you should be generous. Look at the Macedonians. They're really generous. You should be too. Here, I don't know if he's given a slight to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, how would you? And then obviously, Tom Gomorrah, we know that context. But his, an interesting inclusion here of Tyre and um Sidon. So, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Tyre, uh, especially, I can't remember Sidon. They're both cities that are. Um, uh, on the Mediterranean coast. So to the West and to the North and Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon when the, um, the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus. And, and we remember that story. Uh, Jesus doesn't answer her. And then finally he does bless her and heal her daughter from the demon and, and, and commends her faith. It's really wonderful. But, but Tyre was a cool place. It was a, a little Island right off the coast and they were pretty proud of their fortress. I mean, they were an island with a wall around it, basically. And they did. A, they were a, a trade center in the in the ancient world. But um, the Lord gets after their boldness, and so Isaiah will preach often about Tyre. Some of the other prophets too, how they're going to be destroyed, and they thought that's impossible. You know, how can we possibly be destroyed? But, but uh, in one of the great feats of both engineering and overthrow, I think it was Alexander the Great actually built a, a land bridge out to the island and conquered it. 
and it's still it's, so it's not an island still it's still not an island it's like this little uh peninsula that sticks out into the sea uh, because the because of this bridge that alexander the great built over to go and destroy the people so tyre and sidon were both um walloped their their wallop was prophesied by the prophets and it, and it came to pass and so jesus is compared i mean if you were in the time of jesus and you were thinking about cities that got whooped you would remember sodom that's coming up and you would remember tyre and sidon that's coming up so when jesus says says this he's reminding them of the destruction that came on these cities and saying look they got they got that so bad for things that weren't nearly as bad as what you're doing. So if the, if they were um, resisted uh, by the Lord in such a profound way, then imagine what's coming next for us. If any says the words, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. We often use that language, but I mean, as far as I know, I've never seen someone with sackcloth and ashes in America, at least, maybe in other countries they do this. What is he referring to there, sackcloth and ashes? Yeah, um, so this was, in the Old Testament, the the outward way to indicate the inward repentance. So sackcloth is, I suppose, think of it like burlap, and ashes are, well, ashes, and so what the people would do is they would, they would rend their clothes whenever something horrible happened. They would tear their clothes. They would put on sackcloth, this really uncomfortable clothing, and they would put ashes on their head instead of oil, instead of, instead of, um, clean, being clean and, um, and taking care of themselves. You, you pour ashes on your head and that's a sign of repentance. We still have it on Ash Wednesday. So it's kind of carried over that we put ashes on our forehead to indicate this act of repentance, but it's a way of showing, um, it's a way of showing that you're mourning your own sin or the disaster that's happened to you. So when, when Job gets the news that his family had died and all of his stuff had been looted, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and sits on the ash heap. And that's that typical um, indication of repentance. So as you look at that, these are, I mean, he, he's not holding back whatsoever. He's saying, you need to repent, contrition and faith, or else. Is that is that a fair statement to uh, as we look at this, or else? Is that an interpretive key? Uh, it is. Uh, um, I mean, um, it's not like, um, well, it, maybe to go back to what we were talking about before, it's, it's not, uh, when the Lord threatens something like this, it's not because he wants to do it. So, so the threat is there so that the actual punishment wouldn't come there. And so there's the, there's the option that's put there before us when we hear the preaching of the law, when we hear about the judgment to come. And so that's the, that's the or else. This is going to have, uh, you know, it's the un, or the unless or the if uh, the, that the Lord desires to, um, visit us with mercy and with kindness. And yet, um, apart from repentance and faith, that is simply unaccessible to us. I remember a, a, a gentleman that I, that I knew from my first church told a story about he was kind of wavering on becoming Jehovah Witness or staying in Christianity and kind of had a duke out session with his LCMS pastor and a Jehovah Witness person, and at the end they kind of you know spoke their peace, and they both were about to leave. And the pastor told him, "Turn or burn." 
and then left. <laughs> and so that always sticks in my mind as far as when we talk about repentance. And this gentleman did repent and does believe, and he's a, he's a faithful Christian man. But that always, like I said, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking of that turn or burn understanding. And clearly this pastor did not want, you know, this gentleman to to deny the faith or burn, as you would say. Um, but there definitely is, we have to be careful how we describe that. Like you said, it's it's how we use the language and how we see it and how we speak about it. That's, that's a key thing because it is serious business. We're not talking about, well, universalistic thought or something, but it is definitely something where we're not trying to give these ultimatums of saying, good, that's what, that's what they should have gotten anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Lord desires that none would... Um no one would die, no one would come to destruction, but that all would come to repentance. And so that desire of our Lord ought to be the desire also of the Lord's people and our prayer also and and our work for whatever we can do to see to it that um, that more and more come to know and rejoice in, in the gifts of Jesus. Uh, but the law has to be there because, you know, if the gospel is that Jesus saves us from our sins— and I don't think I have any sins, then, you know, what, what good is the gospel? What, how, how is that going to, how is that in fact going to, to be helpful for me? So, so the diagnosis has to come before the cure. Pastor, I want to speak more about that on the other side. We are, we're slowly getting through the text right now, but we need to take our break. We are studying Matthew chapter 11, with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, and we'll be right back. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. And welcome back. We are studying Matthew chapter 11 with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. And Pastor, we, I mean, we're kind of, we're making it, but we only got through two verses so far. And and we, we talked about repentance, fun stuff, woe is you, um, well, the or else's of what Jesus is saying. Anything else before we go through the next few verses? Uh, this is something that I do not know what to think about, but I think it's worth thinking. And that is that Jesus preaches to entire cities here. So he's preaching to the city of Chorazin, Bethsaida, also Tyre and Sidon, also Capernaum and Sodom are going to come up. And and there's a place for the city to hear the preaching. Now, you know that in each of these cities, there would have been those who believed and those who didn't. So even Sodom, for example, uh, had Lot and his and his daughters, uh, his wife, and they were rescued from the city while the rest of the city was destroyed. And so the people in the city are either Christian or not, unrepentant or not, but there's a way that the Lord can address the city. And I don't know what more to make of that except for to make note of it and to think for um, for each of us that it's the, um, you know, it's the city huh, – 
uh, it, let me maybe take two steps back and take a take a quick run at this. Please. When we talk about the three estates that the Lord has instituted, uh, the family and the church and the state. Uh, this puts us to live in this world and to bless our neighbor in these three realms. But the different vocations that I have in the family are not of equal weight. In other words, my my work as a son is much more weighty to me than my work as a second cousin. You see the difference? Or like my work as a, right now, currently, my work as a as a husband is much more weighty than my work as an uncle. So, so that I, those are all vocations I have in the family, but some are at a higher level than than others. The same thing is true in the church. I, I mean, I'm my local congregations here. That's where the that's where my vocation as a church member really has its most weight. Now, I'm also a member of the circuit and of the synod and of the you know the International Lutheran Church Federation or, or ILC or whatever. But but I'm especially a member of these congregations. That's where that that's where that estate has weight. And I think when it comes to being a citizen, it, we say, well, what do I weight the most? Uh, I'm a citizen of the United States, of Texas, of Williamson County, of, or I suppose let's go to Austin. So Travis County, Austin, Texas, uh, my particular neighborhood, and so forth and so on. W at what point, which one of those matters the most? And I think that for the Bible, the thing that matters most is the city. My, my citizenship of this city, working in Austin, living in Round Rock, that's, where, that's the thing that should be the most weighty. I think we think of it as, uh, I'm an American. That's the most weighty part of my involvement in the state. Or if you're around here, I'm a Texan. You know, that's the weightiest part. But the Bible wants us to look at our city and to consider the city and in such a way that Jesus can even preach to the different cities. So I think there's something there. I don't know how much further I can go on that, but but I, I think it should be noted. And it is something that very clearly, if you're always away from where you live, you lose touch with your neighbors. I mean, that's how I'm going to kind of look at this. And, and you also see when our towns are hurting, you know, the rest are going to be hurting. And so it's very local and like our local school or my kids go to school and my local congregation, like that's where the rubber hits the road. So I'm, I'm trying to think how you're speaking as well. It's, it's very important for us to keep those distinctions and to be faithful where God has placed us. We're right there. He's being very specific. He's not saying, woe to you, O world. Right. You know, a sinful world or sinful country. He's looking at a city and that's where it really hits home. Yeah. So uh, are we are we uh, yep. are we good to move on? Yep. Yep. Okay, Let's keep going. Twenty two through twenty four. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable in the land in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You'll be brought down to Hades for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now, I just I want to make this point, and I want you to uh, to uh, add or take away or whatever it might be. But for me, what really hits me is think of Sodom. You think of the worst of the worst of cities, the most unfaithful of cities. Even though they had Lot there, it still was a disaster of a town, and it really it got what was coming to them. Is kind of how we normally talk. 
And what I'm interpreting here is he's telling uh, Corazon and Bethsaida, basically you and Capernaum are just as bad as them. That's, yeah. Those are pretty hard, hard words. Yeah, thoughts? that's right. And when we think of the sins of Sodom, uh, all the Sodom stuff that was going on, we think, boy, could it get worse than that? And Jesus says, yep. And the worse than that is not believing in Jesus. Now, that's not to say the stuff going on in Sodom was not bad, but the judgment will be based on this. What do you say of Jesus? And and no matter what, no matter what your sins, no matter what your failures, no matter what commandments you've broken, what do you say of Jesus? That's the thing that's going to matter on the judgment day. And, and Jesus drives that home. Can you imagine being in Capernaum and being pretty proud you know you've got your big synagogue there and you've you're reading the bible and you think and you got all this big collection of pharisees hanging around you think you're pretty good and jesus says look sodom's gonna have it better than you guys we that's some hard words to to hear but you know the same jesus says unless your righteousness unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and pharisees you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven and so so it is i mean this is um the 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 required righteousness to enter into God's kingdom is not something that we can ever achieve by our own by our own efforts, and that is um, that is helpful for us to to get by the by the preaching of Jesus. I want to put this into, I guess you say today's world is that we see Chorazin and we see Bethsaida, Capernaum, we remember Sodom Gomorrah. Who is our, quote, if I can say it this way, our Chorazin and Bethsaida today that we, that we, well, let me take one step back before you answer that, or we talk about that, is I feel like Jesus is grieving just like he was in Luke 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. He grieves that they do not believe. And so, although the language here is very strong, it also, I feel like, Maybe, maybe I'm going too far with it, but I feel like he is grieving just like he was in Luke chapter 13 over Jerusalem. So there definitely is a grief that is there. And I feel like there's a grief for us today. So um, who is our Chorazin? Who is our Besida today that we grieve that they need, that we want them to repent? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it should be our, well, look, I mean, it should be our own sinful hearts. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's where the... That's where the depth of sin that wounds us the most is. And, and to know that out of the heart comes every evil thing, out of the darkness of our own flesh, that's where, that's where the Lord needs to apply his law first. Uh, and I suppose, woe to us if we, if we hear this. I mean, look at what Jesus says. He says, he doesn't say, woe to them, Chorazin. <laughs> he says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Capernaum. So if, if we don't stand there in Capernaum and hear this directed at us, if we, if we say woe to them over there, then we, we're really in trouble. So, so it must first be preaching to us, and then, and then it extends out from there to our own neighbors and so forth. Um, to, to, to know that the danger here is that Jesus would, would bring his word of blessing and that we would miss it. That's the, that is the great danger. So may God save us from that. 
oh, Holy Spirit, enter in, um, comes to mind as, mm-hmm. I, as I hear those words. Mm-hmm. Pastor, anything else on the unrepentant cities? I, I'm excited to get to some rest and some yep. peace, but yep. you know, Let's we, do it. maybe we need to see the repentance. We're good? Okay. All right. <laughs> so we look at Jesus makes a transition, and it says he declares. So we're going to read this verses 25 through 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So it appears to me that Jesus is having a sort of prayer, and he's he's um he's speaking once again the words that he has said throughout the gospels about his view of little children and faith. Yeah. Uh what do you have for us? It's it's so beautiful to hear the conversation between the Father and the Son. Um, we got to hear it in the Old Testament. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Sit here at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Receive the nations prepared for you. All the, so this ongoing conversation between the Father and the Son is made known by the prophets. And now we are given um, another taste of that conversation here. I mean, it comes to the New Testament too. Behold, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased and so forth. I have exalted it. I will exalt it again. The father says to the son, and here the son says to the father, I thank you that you've hidden all these things from the wise and revealed them to the little children so that the father's business is to hide and to reveal and his work of hiding and revealing um, his salvation is not based God be praised on earthly wisdom and understanding. You do not have to get a uh, a 4.0 in your high school classes or get an extremely high grade on the SAT or have a genius level IQ to, uh, to know the gospel. The Lord is the one who reveals it. And even to the simple, even to the, here, the napion, the infant, the babies, so that the the little ones, so that so that this um, revelation of who Jesus is is the gracious work of the Father. Remember how uh, Peter confesses, "You're the Christ, the Son of the Living God," and Jesus says, "You're blessed." And flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. So the revelation of God's kindness comes from heaven, and we we're able to rejoice in that. So it's really it's quite quite wonderful uh, to, to hear this prayer from Jesus and his thanksgiving. Uh, that the wise, um, that the wise of this world have the wisdom of God hidden, and the foolish of this world have the wisdom of God revealed. And this goes to one of our main interpretive ideas throughout this book that that we've heard continuously is goes back to the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." Dr. Gibbs speaks about how, you know, the, the poor in spirit, who's, who's the most poor in spirit? A little child that just can't do anything unless it is helped. And so he plops that right in the middle here, and he praises to the Father, plops it right in the middle and says, here is um, the most blessed that you can think of. And now he's praying it. Now, break, break this down for me real quick, if you can. Maybe not real quick, but break it down. Jesus is praying to the Father. Hard to imagine because I thought Jesus was God. And so how would you describe that? Well, remember that in the in the uh, within the Godhead, the single there is only one God, but there are three persons and those uh, that one of the aspects of the persons of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that um, 
is that of well personality and therefore of conversation so there is an there is a sense of other within god so that the father is not the son and the son is not the spirit and the spirit is not the father and there is then um in this trinity of father son and holy spirit uh an eternal love an eternal relationship in fact the, even those words the t- the titles of god father and son are are words of relationship the father is the son's father and the son is the father's son and a conversation that extends between them and so um jesus prays here not as a man it's not i mean he is a man of course but you know sometimes we'll say he he sleeps because he's a man he rests because of his human nature and so forth no he's praying because he is the son of god and this conversation is the eternal reality of uh the blessed and holy trinity this is a great thing for us to consider is that when we pray it's not also because we're people but it's because we're god's children and that and we're brought into that um community i suppose of the of the godhead and into that eternal conversation so that's that's wonderful to see it's very humbling to see how well the, the humility of christ if you will you know to see the submission that he does one he understands but also secondly just yeah he is the son of god i mean this is uh, um we have to remember that about him so as we as we look at that I want to really spend a lot of time on our last part, 27 through 30. But are there anything else you want to highlight? Because this, I mean, these verses really do set the tone for the rest. So yeah. anything in 25 and 26. There, maybe just to highlight that when Jesus says in verse 26, this is your gracious will to, to know that we want to speak of the good and gracious will of God. That's what's made known to us in the scripture. God's general will or what the sometimes theologians call his permissive will i I think general wills might be better is covers all things but his gracious will is that his uh his kindness and love is revealed even to little children and this doesn't exclude the wise or the understanding it excludes their wisdom so it's not like the wise of this world cannot become followers of jesus but to do that, they're going to have to forsake their earthly wisdom and rejoice in the wisdom that comes from the Heavenly Father. Just like it, it's not like when Jesus is talking about the um, those who would seek to become his children by doing good works. It's not like they're excluded, but the thing that is excluded is their good works. So that the wise and understanding of this world have to become as little children uh, and then as little children come into, into the kingdom of Jesus. So let's move forward with that gracious will. Oh, by the way, I, I was thinking about this as the evening prayer, Martin Luther's evening prayer, um, that your, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day, that he is a gracious God, that everything we receive is purely a gift. And so, he, like you said, he hasn't excluded the person, he's excluded their wisdom, which is an important piece, because we often put it in, like, well, I am what I am, and this is what I was born with. And therefore, if you if you say this is wrong, then you're you're getting rid of all of me. And Jesus says, No, that's not at all the case. That I've died for the whole thing, and and your wisdom is getting in the way. So don't be Chorazin, don't be Bethsaida, um, uh, be as wise as a little child. So th- those are the thoughts I have, mm-hmm. Pastor. I'm ready to move on. Yep. Twenty-seven through thirty. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
And no one knows the son except the father. No one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, my natural inclination is to get to verse 28, but verse 27 is another great way for the, to build us up into 28. Is this, he speaks about how, you know, kind of this relationship, the father and the son and the revelation of who Jesus is. How would you, how would you break that down? Because that can be confusing. Sure. Well, it reminds us of, Jesus will say this after his uh, crucifixion and resurrection um, when he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Here he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. It is amazing to think that Jesus, as the Son of God, has all things already, but he is pleased to receive them from the Father. And so Jesus is the recipient of the Father's kindness and generosity, and so the Father gives all things to Jesus. And then Jesus is the one who delivers us to the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus, as the word of God, is the one who makes God known to us and the one who then brings us to the Lord. Um, this, this is a, uh, let's see, this reminds us of John chapter 1, uh, nicely, where Jesus says, No one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father has revealed him. So that Jesus is the one who makes God the Father known. And, and God the Father then is revealed through Jesus to us in the Spirit. So so that's important. Those who would just have the Father apart from the Son have neither the Father nor the Son. And Jesus will say this clearly in other places. If you reject me, you reject the Father who sent me. So Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by him. And so, so we know that um, Jesus is the one who reveals also the Father to us. His, his preaching, his miracles, his life, especially his suffering and his death, this is the revelation of the Father and the Father's mm, thoughts and works toward us. To me, I feel like I, I, what I see here is he says these words, um, no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, if he stopped there, you're kind of like, okay, all right, so we'll, we'll find that out later, you're saying. Okay, all right, good. I'm excited to have that happen. Matthew 28, I guess we'll have to wait for that. No, he then reads these, ne- he says these next words, really, um, this is an epiphany thing, revealing that what the son is supposed to reveal. Mm-hmm. This is how the son operates. This is who the son is. I feel like this is a great epiphany text. What are your thoughts? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So the son is the, as the word of God, is the one who makes known the father and the spirit too. And and it's of the, it's of the son's choice. The son chooses to reveal him. So, um, so discovering God is not a matter of our own efforts or achievements, but it is the work of Jesus. The reason why you and I and all those who are listening, the reason why we know of the Father is because the Son has revealed him to us. God be praised. It's not our works, it's his. So what kind of Son is this when you look at verses 28 through 30? Because these words are, are, are absolutely beautiful to be able to use in pastoral care to preach on, for people to read devotionally, because 
people get these verses? And what does this tell us about Jesus as he invites people to himself? Well, can maybe contrast Jesus here in his own words with how Jesus is normally preached. Come to me, all who are heavy laden and labor, and I will give you more work to do. <laughs> Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am a taskmaster and proud and strong, and you will find work for your souls. For my yoke is burdensome and my burden is heavy. I mean, this is, even if it's not said in those words, this is how Jesus is often presented to the, to the church. I, I remember, Pastor Finner, when, uh, before I was uh, in, in the Lutheran church, um, being involved in the evangelical church, th- this is how I felt. This, it's a, it was an extreme burden, an extreme um, heaviness uh, th- that Jesus was. Um, uh, a taskmaster, and that my Christian life was uh, was burdensome. Oh, burdensome! And these words dispel that. Jesus says, "Look, you you labor, you're heavy laden. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Sabbath in Hebrew, I'll give you rest." Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. So that you have to imagine the yoke, the ox, and it puts the two ox together so that they they can pull the plow or whatever. They're pulling a wagon or whatever. So that we yoke up next to Jesus. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. I'm, I'm sure that we do not dwell enough on the gentleness of Jesus, but how often is it presented to us in the scriptures? And when we see him gentle and lowly in heart, we find rest for our souls. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He takes upon himself the burden of our sin, the yoke of our death, the, 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 the weight of our mortality and wickedness, and he carries that to the cross so that he can yoke us to his life and joy and peace and the forgiveness of all of our sins. This is the, this is the clean conscience. It's, it's, it's dancing through life knowing that heaven is opened and that God is smiling. It's really quite wonderful. And it's, it's not a matter of earning or deserving or doing enough to get there. No, Jesus is, has done it already. It's finished and he invites us into the joy and the comfort and the peace of that kingdom of his, which is governed from his cross and ruled by his righteousness and, and forgiveness of all of our sins. It reminds me of the hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea. Um, o Lamb of God, I come, I come. And it, and, it, and it begins every single stanza, just as I am without one plea. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, just as I am, thou tossed about, just as I am, thou will receive, are these words, and it just keeps coming back. I come, I come. And here, if you just end with I come, you can still be left with that, you know, come to me and have rest because I have more for you to do. <laughs> just come to me, you know, as you mentioned so well, is that we love to add more to the words and then we kind of forget the words that are there, which is um, come unto me, all who labor and heavy laden, which we all can understand, and I will give you rest. Mm-hmm. Pastor, how would you, uh, this one I want to ask as you've unpacked that so beautifully, is what does it mean to rest in Jesus for the for the mother of young children, for the, the father who's trying to 
take care of his whole family while they're trying to figure out their college debt. Um, the grandfather who is struggling physically or the grandmother who's trying to figure out how to balance everything. Whoever it might be, someone on their deathbed or, or to a child just going to school with masks on and everything else. What does it mean to rest in Jesus for our day to day? Yeah, because there's a lot to do. And it doesn't mean taking naps, although I, I'm not against that, but that's not what okay. Jesus is talking about. Uh, but let's just imagine two things. Let's know first, uh, consider our own sin. So we all know that that the Lord has said, here's how I want you to live, and we have failed to live that way. Here's how I want you to love, and we have failed to love. Here's how I want you to be, and what I want you to say, and how I want you to talk, and how I want you to think. And here's what I want you to want, and we have wanted all the wrong things, desired all sorts of wickedness, forgotten all the goodness of the Lord. We've spoken evil things against our neighbors and our friends, and we've we've harbored bitterness against against our enemies, and, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We've been selfish. We've been concerned about our own uh, lives, our own needs, our own happiness, rather than that of our neighbor, even our closest neighbors that the Lord has given us, our parents and our children and our spouses. The Lord uh, has given us all these gifts and we've been negligent of them so that we are, every single one of us, have fallen short of the glory of God. We, we are guilty and we truly do deserve, because of that guilt, because of those broken commandments, because of our failure to rejoice in the life that the Lord has given us and follow his commands, we truly deserve his punishment in this life and in the life to come. And yet the Lord Jesus has taken all of that guilt on himself and suffered all of it, forgiven all of it, and looks at us with kindness and grace and love and says, I forgive you. I forgive you. That's the first rest that Jesus gives us. He forgives us our sins. But there's a second rest that he gives us because we think, well, God is up there and we are down here. And so surely we must need to, to do something to please him. We must get after it now and keep the commandments so that he'll be pleased with us, so that he won't forget about us, so that we can be worthy of the gifts that he's given us. And, and so that we can earn eternal life and we can, we can make him happy. And to this, Jesus says, I've done it already. I've given you, not only have I taken away your sins, I've given you my own righteousness so that there's nothing you can do to earn or deserve heaven because you have it already. And in fact, any attempt to earn it or deserve it by your own works and efforts, by your own goodness and, and by your own earnestness, all of that becomes offensive because I've given it to you already. So Jesus not only sets us free from our guilt, but he also sets us free from all of this striving to earn eternal life and to get into heaven by our own goodness. Now, that doesn't mean we do good works, but Jesus says, look, if you want to do a good work, there's your neighbor who needs it. Get after it. And so we say, okay, I'll do that. But even then we fail and he, he forgives us there. And so the Lord, he calms our hearts from all of this, all of this anxiety that we've upset him or all of this worry that we haven't earned his love, he quiets all of that. And that is the rest that he gives us. It's the rest of the forgiveness of sins. It's the rest of his imputed righteousness. It's the rest of knowing that when on the last day, heaven cracks open and the glory of God is manifest and Jesus descends from, from his 
throne to sit on judgment of the world that when you are gathered to him there on that day, he is going to smile at you. <laughs> He's going to delight over you because he loves you. And that rest, that rest from trying to clamor up into heaven or trying to run away from God's judgment, that is the rest that Jesus gives in his life and death and his resurrection. And it is glorious. And I think that rest, by the way, is what energizes us to actually go and love and serve our neighbor and bless the people around us. I think it's time for me to go and love and to serve my family and those around me all because of Christ and his rest. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller of St. Paul and Jesus Lutheran, Jesus Death Lutheran Church of, in Austin, Texas, giving us God's wrong word from Matthew chapter 11. Pastor Wolfmiller, thank you for bringing us his gifts. My pleasure. Great to be on again. I'm your host, Brady Finneran, pastor of Messiah Lutheran Church in Sartell, Minnesota. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hand.